You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today is Morgan Housel, who is a partner at The Collaborative Fund, a venture capital firm backing young companies that are moving the world forward. Previously, he was a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and an analyst at The Motley Fool. His book, The Psychology of Money, has sold over 3 million copies and has been translated into 53 languages. He has a fantastic new book. It's called Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Love the book. Love this conversation. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Morgan Hassel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. While reading your book, I was reminded of a particular Neil Gaiman quote that I want to read to you. He once wrote, quote, you're always you and that doesn't change. And you're always changing, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's good. Does that track? That's, that's good. No, I, I definitely like that. I think, um, I, I think what, what what reminds me of that is like virtually all of us live in the own little confines of the bubble that we've experienced in life. And I view the world as a college-educated white American male. I imagine you do too. And there's nothing we can do yeah. about it. It's just yeah. what we've seen. I've always been me. I will always be me. But at the same time, like everything's everything's always changing around us, which is like a big part of this book was we are so bad at predicting the future because particularly in things like the stock market and the economy and politics, because everyone is trying to focus on what is going to change. And, and our track record there is horrendous. I've always been a financial writer and I found myself cynical at how bad the entire punditry in business was at predicting the stock market and recessions and whatnot. And so for me, like a lot of this just came from like, I think the reason we're so bad at it is because everyone's trying to figure out what is going to change. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that. There's no evidence that people can do that. But we are pretty good at understanding what is not going to change about human behavior. And so if you can go through life intentionally at the 30,000 foot level, just being like, what are the big, broad psychology movements that never change? I actually think you have a better viewpoint of understanding what the future is going to be in your own life and for broader society. Yeah. And I was thinking about this from my particular perch, having worked at Second City for nearly 35 years, which is, you know, improvisers are forced and trained in practices that they need to stay fiercely in the moment, knowing that they're navigating complete uncertainty because they're writing a script in real time with someone else and they can't be privy to what's going on in their brain. So they have to deal with what they're given. And so when you hear phrases like see all obstacles as gifts, 
replace blame with curiosity. They're all about ways that you, this, you can only be a good improviser if you're doing those things. And then the really good improvisers are very funny in part because they realize the absurdity that they're dealing with and that all of us in real time are going to pick up on those observations. And my wife, uh, who's a comedy professor, has a, a book on comedy theory coming out next year. And she says, you're always working with three elements in comedy, pain, distance, and recognition, you know, and recognition being the thing that usually doesn't get talked about, which is just sort of like, oh, I see this is true. And, and to me, that makes me laugh. Yeah. No, that's, that's so good. I would imagine improv too, that a big part of it, and speaking as someone who has, who has no idea what they're talking about for improv, <laughs> a lot of it is you can't let perfect be the enemy of good because you no. just have to say something. You just got to like, whatever's on your mind. Just say it. Don't, don't think about it. Don't analyze what's best. Spit it out. Spit yeah. it out right now. Yeah. In the first chapter, you actually give some pretty interesting examples from history. Uh, the chapter is called Hanging by a Thread. Uh, that um, I kind of illustrate your point of like, you can't, you can't guess this because if the wind was blowing differently, right? Can you give us some of those examples? So the, the, the point of this chapter is how fragile the world is, particularly how fragile the future can be, because it's so easy to underestimate how a tiny little know-nothing decision today can spiral into just a world-changing or a life-changing event. There's a great writer named Tim Urban, and he says, if you had a time machine and you can go back in time, you would be terrified to even step out of the house in the because you know that every single decision that you make, even a, a know-nothing decision, can spiral into a life-changing ordeal. And so what, what you just mentioned about the wind was uh, what I thought was so fascinating. It was during the Revolutionary War, there was a period during the Battle of, of Long Island when George Washington and his troops were cornered by the British. And the British were so close to wiping them out, to wiping George Washington and his troops out. All they had to do was sail up the East River just outside of Brooklyn and, and corner George Washington, and it was all going to be over. And it didn't happen because that night when the British were going to sail up the East River, the winds changed direction and they couldn't sail. And it gave George Washington and his troops just enough time to regroup and escape. And historian David McCullough, who's kind of like the world's, like one of the foremost authorities on George mm -hmm. Washington, the Revolutionary War, he was being interviewed by, Char by Charlie Rose. And Charlie Rose said, if the wind had been blowing another direction that night, would there be a United States of America? And David McCullough said, absolutely not. That's all it took. The British wow. would have won the Revolutionary War and went over. So here you think something as broad and important to us, at least, as the United States of America literally exists because the wind was blowing north instead of south. And there are so many examples of this, whether it's in World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, or your own life or my own little life, yeah. where the tiniest little know-nothing decision blows out of proportion into something enormous. Sometimes those events are good. Maybe it's like how you met your spouse. And it was just like, you chose to walk on this route and you ran into your, like whatever it is. Some of them are bad. Some of them are like, you, like, like it leads to World War II, whatever it might be. But it's always just this recognition that the changes in the future are impossible to know beforehand because everything hangs by a thread. And like the chaos theory of life is so much more grand and powerful than we want to think it is. We want to think everything is going to play out in ways that are very foreseeable and ways that are very logical. And if you dig through enough history, I think it's just not the case. It's never been the case and it never will be the case that we have a good grasp on exactly what's going to happen in the future. And one of the other problems we've got with history, and I learned this from, and I forget who I had on the podcast, but it was talking about historical battles. And, and, and the author was suggesting, he's like, you know, I, I don't know, you're talking about someone trying to explain a 
a historical battle who in, mo- in most cases wasn't there, but let's assume they were there. Um, what are they seeing? Do they have an aerial view? In, in most historical, no. So <laughs> it's ca- it, talk about chaos, right? Massive chaos, stuff whizzing by. You, you can't really know often what happened. You've got a, a really interesting passage in the book. You say, quote, history knows three things. One, what's been photographed. Two, what someone wrote down or recorded. And three, the words spoken by people who historians and journalists journalists wanted to interview and who agreed to be interviewed. What percentage of everything important that's ever happened falls into one of these three categories? No one knows, but it's tiny. And all three suffer from misinterpretation, incompleteness, embellishment, lying, and selective memory. So there's the not trusting now, but there's also the not trusting looking back that's a lot of living and not trusting yeah i mean obviously the the quote that might come to to mind is that the victors write history whatever that yeah. quote is that, that i butchered i've i've always been a world war ii buff and one of the most interesting books to me um is a book called uh what we knew and it interviews german civilians who are who are who are around in in nazi germany time in nazi germany times and just ask, what did you see? What did you know? You were just mm-hmm. a civilian in the 1940s. Tell me what it was like in Germany. And it's the side of World War II that is forgotten because the victors write the history. Yeah. There's another book called D-Day Through German Eyes, self-explanatory mm-hmm. title, where mm-hmm. everyone knows the D-Day story of how it went down on the side of the Allies. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating to hear it through the German eyes and what they saw. And you have all these anecdotes that I think are so pertinent to the war that we we uh, lose track of. One of them, I'll, I'll not to go too deep in a rabbit hole here, but one that's so interesting is they interviewed this German soldier who was there on D-Day mm-hmm. who said they, he could not understand why the allies were so angry at the Germans. And he was like, don't you understand that we, the Nazis, are the guardians of Europe? Why are you so mad at us? Mm-hmm. And they, they had been so effectively brainwashed yeah. that they could not understand the position of the allies. And there's okay. things like that that are just fascinating. And you realize that 99% of the history on World War II or whatever the event might be is one-sided is, is the wrong phrase, but it's just, it's very selective in terms right. of what we, we get to hear. Are you familiar with the podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk? No, but that's a great title. All right. So yeah, I'm about to send you on a very deep, dark rabbit hole and I apologize. Uh, so it's a historian and a comedian, but the comedian was uh, studied history at Oxford. Uh, they're British. And it's, it's, they started just pre COVID and it's all these wandering, lovely episodes, but it's a lot of myth busting around World War, World War II. And the one that continues to blow me away is the fact that uh, Germany was never going to win uh, by virtue of being a landlocked nation. <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, because I, it's, I wasn't, I, I was raised that this was the most elite. A fighting army. That's the other thing that's in there, which is that somehow they were the the better and they were better art. They weren't. They didn't have better armaments. They didn't have it. Like in all the cases, you know, stuff was off. And I think you, I think you actually maybe alluded to it in your book, if I didn't, and that we didn't take into consideration the fact that Hitler was out of his mind and yes, wasn't going to stop. That was the one thing. There's a quote from General Omar Bradley during World War II that I thought was so interesting. And he said, if the Germans were rational people, they would have surrendered a long time ago. And a lot of what happened, a lot of what took the Americans back, particularly during things like the Battle of the Bulge, is that by any rational measure, the Germans should not have counterattacked. They were never going to win. They didn't have the troops. They didn't have the armaments. The weather sucked. Everything was bad. So the Americans assumed they're not go- if they're rational people, they're not going to counterattack. But they weren't rational. Hitler was completely out of his mind completely detached from reality. Uh So if you go through life assuming 
that the decisions that people will make are going to be rational and level-headed and fact-based, you lose, you're, 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 you're going to miss a lot of the biggest events from people who are doing things in ways that just don't compute. There's not a rational answer to it. It's just people who are disconnected from reality or have different incentives than you do. So they make decisions that look completely uh, irrational to you, but, may, but might make sense in their mind at the time. So breaking down this idea around expectations, the, the part in the book that stuck with me and that I've been talking to everyone about is this idea that we pine for the 50s. That, that you see this all, you know, this is make America great again, but it's more than that, right? I mean, it's, it's seen as this idyllic time. And I want you to talk to us a little bit about like, well, you know, why is it perhaps not? And that what was it that actually was going on back there uh, that we're, we're latching onto that we don't know that we're latching onto? Yeah. So if you ask generations of Americans today across different ages and generations, mm -hmm. when was peak American prosperity economically? Overwhelmingly, people point to the 1950s as that time. Also the 80s and 90s, but really the 50s is like, is like Americana power, like, like middle class prosperity. It's what people will remember. White picket fences and Chevys and like everything was great. And what to me is astounding about that, because I kind of have that emotional reaction too when I think about the 50s. But if you look at the data, People were not better off back then than they are today. We was not this glorious rich, but it's not even close. Like mm -hmm. the average household was so much better off in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s to the day than they were in the 50s. Yeah. So then the question is like, okay, why this nostalgia? Where does it come from? And there could be a lot of answers to that. It's not black and white, but I think a big one is this, which is that the, the 50s were a very unique period in that for a brief period of time, for about 12 or 15 years, there was very little wealth inequality in America. A lot of that was just like an echo from the war of how companies yeah. were managed and the top marginal tax rate was 95%, 91%. And so it created an era where the distribution of incomes was very flat. And that was really important to people's mindsets because there's no such thing as an objective measure of wealth. Everything is just how much do you have relative to, that, to your neighbor, to your coworker? How, do you, how much do you have relative to other people? And in the 50s, most people looked around at their neighbors and their coworkers and their siblings and they said, Relative to that person, I'm doing okay. I'm doing about as well as they are because the income distribution was so flat. And so it made it an era where it was easy to keep your expectations in check, where you looked around and you're like, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty well. This is good. And I think what's happened over the last 80 years since then is our incomes have gone up, our net worths have gone up, the stock market's gone up, but expectations have gone up by even more because there is a very small number of extremely rich people inflating everybody else's expectations. Yeah, the wage gap so, is giant now. It's enormous. So now if you are a middle-class person, in the 50s, you compared yourself to other middle-class people. Yeah. Whereas today, you, you go onto Instagram and you look at people in Lamborghinis and private jets and what, what, whatever it might be, it's so much easier to inflate your expectations. So even if we are better off, it, we feel like we're worse off because it's all by comparison. And social media has blown this so far out of proportion because now the people who you're comparing yourself to is a curated highlight reel of strangers. It used to be your neighbors and your coworkers. Now it's a curated highlight reel of strangers. Someone explained this recently. They said, we went from keeping up with the Joneses to keeping up with the Kardashians. That's mm -hmm. the gap of what happened. Mm -hmm. And it makes it so that you can totally imagine, and true to the theme of this book, it's always been like this, a future in which my grandchildren earn adjusted for inflation twice as much as me, twice yeah. as much as, as you, and they're no happier for it because right. their expectations will be so great. I told this to someone the other day and, they're, and it's going to be like, yeah, they're all going to be arguing whether uh, you know, you're, you're flying first class or coach to Mars. 
that's going to be their world that they're living in. You know, it's just, uh, it's like their, their expectations of a good life will be completely different. I already see this in my son who's seven. He yeah. spends a lot of time on YouTube, of course, and how influenced he is by like the definition of a good life. If you watch Mr. Beast or whatever it might be, your definition of a good life is a Lamborghini and a private jet. Very different from what I had growing up or from what I saw growing up. I had a conversation with my 25-year-old recently that caught me off guard in that he offhandedly said, I have no expectations I'll ever own a home. And I was just sort of reflecting on the fact of like when I was growing up, it was all, everything was real estate. Everything was like, that's what you need to do. Buy a home, buy a home, buy a home. And and that has changed. The reality has changed uh, for many people, but he just has no expectation. He wasn't even saying it in the sort of a rueful or upset way. It was just sort of like, no, I, I've, I've just, I'm not going to have that. So I need to focus in on the thing. And he, you know, this is a guy who just quit his corporate job, uh, literally just got text from me, just got cast in Romeo and Juliet at Atlanta Shakespeare theater. So it's like, it's great. He's pursuing what he loves, but it's like, man, like, and I know this from, I mean, I've, you know, my, I've the last three decades of my life have been working with people who become famous. And I can tell you across the board, their their wealth and their success has nothing, nothing to do with whether they're happy or not. Yes, so true, so true. And it's it's and as true as that is, I think it's impossible for non-rich and famous people to accept it. Yes, you have to do it. There's a really great quote that I love from Will Smith, the actor, in his mm-hmm. in his biography, and he says, "When he was poor and depressed, he ha- he could have hope. He could tell himself, as soon as I get money, all my problems will go away." But then when he was rich and depressed, he had no hope. He couldn't tell himself, if only I had more money, things would be better. He had all the money he could ever spend. And that the wealth actually made him sadder because it, it removed hope from his life. And mm. that is something too, that even if you like nod your head to that, I think it's impossible to actually grasp if you're, if yeah. you're not a wealthy person. So I think uh, that's, that's, that's a big part of like people are, people are wired to chasing status instead of happiness. And so even if it is the case that money's not going to make you happiness, that is not going to make you happy, there's always going to be a frantic chase for it because it's not necessarily the happiness that you're after. It's the status. And maybe you think the status is going to make you happy, but money's just a very tangible way to measure how you're doing relative to others. Like if I were to say, uh, you are funnier than me, yeah. how do you quantify that? It, it's yeah. probably true, but how do you quantify that? But if, if I were to say you are in a higher income than me, we can measure that down to the penny. So it's just a very quantifiable way to measure you against other people. And I think that's what people are chasing. It's like, even if it doesn't make you happy, it's not going to lose its allure. There was some minor spat going on and someone turned to me and said, uh, of course, the politics are bad. The stakes are so low. And that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, yeah, no, I mean, of course, at every level. And I think this is the, this is the status stuff, which is I'm terribly interested in. Uh, but is indeed what can we control in this moment, and where where can I get some leverage? And 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 we can't help but humans be thinking. And it's also why a lot of really wealthy people they just they want more. They yeah. they always feel like something's going to get the the grievance culture of very rich people is hilarious because it seems to be the grievance equal to the grievance culture of people with nothing. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, and some of that is what you would expect because the reason that they are rich is because they want money so badly. And that character trait is not going to go away. It's extremely uncommon if it would ever happen that someone would have the mentality that could make them a billionaire. And once they have a billion dollars, they say, that's enough. I'm just going to cash out and put it into muni bonds. Like that would, that would never happen. And so some of that is just like a self-selecting part of what they want. The other thing is the richer those people become, 
the more ingrained wealth becomes as part of their identity. It's who they are. When most people hear the word Bill Gates, I'm willing to bet most people's first thought is not Microsoft. Their first thought is wealth. And that's, it's just so synonymous with who he is. So if you take that away from him or, or any of these very wealthy people, it's just so shattering to their entire identity. And that's why they try to hold on to it so much. I just got booked to do a keynote for the Gates Foundation. I'll I'll see him in two weeks. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to see him. I doubt I'm going to see him. All right. Use that bit if you want. Yeah. yeah, You mentioned Danny Kahneman a couple of times. And I thought about this and wrote in my notes because um, my friend Linnea is kind of his chief of staff when, when he's writing books. And, and um, at one point I I said to her, I go, what's he reading? Uh, And he was reading Sapiens. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari has taken a fair amount of beating from certain intellectuals and historians and other people about this book, Sapiens. But I want you to talk about why you bring it up in, in, in your book. Here's what I think is so interesting, because I'm familiar with the beatings of that book, too. If you yeah. are a, a highbrow intellectual, saying that you're reading Sapiens is like one of the most like deplorable things you can do. In the high this is Danny circles, Kahneman, who is maybe the top guy. <laughs> Yes. And I'm pretty sure Kahneman is even like is quoted on the book cover. He's like associated with it. Yep. I, well, here's, here's my understanding of Sapiens. Even the author, Yuval Noah Harari, will say there's nothing new in the book. He yep. didn't uncover anything. There are no new theories. He did no groundbreaking work. And he admits, this is quoting him. He said, when I was writing this, I thought to myself, this is so boring. There's nothing new in here, but the book has sold something like 20 million copies. He's honestly one of the best nonfiction writers of modern times. And the reason why, in in my view, is because it is so staggeringly well-written. The Hmm. prose is great. The stories are great. It is like an effort. If you compare that to another anthropology textbook, forget about it. Like it is a book that you can just like breeze your eyes over and soak up these stories in a way that is so wonderful. The book sold well because it's a great story, even if what's in there is not particularly new. I think there's a lot like this. I also mentioned in my book, Ken Burns, mm-hmm. the documentarian, most of what he produces about the Civil War, World War II, Vietnam are not new facts. The Civil War is like one of the most documented experiences in American history. He's not uncovering new no. details. He's just telling a staggeringly good story, an emotional story. And one example of that, he's talked about that he puts so much emphasis in his documentaries on the background music. This is not just like, oh, slip it in at the end. He will sit there for weeks on end trying to pick the right background music. And he will literally tailor his script so that a word the narrator says matches up with a beat in the music because that's what evokes emotion. And so even if it's not new information, he's one of the most sought after content persons and people, if you want to say that, um, because he tells such a good story. So the idea that the best story always wins, not, not the new idea, not the best answer, not even the right answer, the best story that gets people to nod their heads in attention always wins. And what so many of the people who sneer at sapiens are missing is that they might be coming up with uh, better answers, more accurate mm-hmm. answers, new answers, but they're terrible storytellers. So nobody's going to pay attention. I think that whether you like it or not, that's just a fact of how the world works. I, this has been a huge conversation for us. And, and I actually just talked to my friend Sunil Gupta about it. Um, and in part because when Sunil's first book, Backable, came out, it's filled with fantastic stories. And again, stories I hadn't heard before, a lot like your book, where, where it's not drawing on the same, you know, uh, five stories around Legos or whatever. And um, 
And then, and then we actually co-created a class with Sunil at Northwestern. My wife and he co-taught it uh, for the Farley School of uh, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So, you know, we're a lot of times going in and working with people who are in creative sectors, and, and not that these people are in a creative sector, but they, they didn't know anything about storytelling. And we were teaching these, these students how t- the importance of them telling their story, and a lot of that is drawing on their own personal stories, their parents' stories. Where do you come from? And and it always surprises people. Like, why would people care about that? I'm like, no, this is that. This is what they care. About. And by the way, also, they probably don't want to hear your wild success story. They want to hear your f- fiasco and the fact that you made it through. Yes, yes, and, and, and that is a I, huge part. It's a, it's been astounding to me that particularly in uh, business academia, like for, if you're getting your MBA, so much yeah. of it is taught as a math based topic of here are the formulas, here are the datas, memorize the formulas and regurgitate them on the test. When in my mind, the history of business has some of the most fascinating stories ever. And if I were to teach an MBA class, it would be like, let's read John D. Rockefeller's biography. It's a crazy mm. story. And there's so much to learn from it. And you're going to remember it, but you're not yeah. going to remember the formula. So I think there's like the, the people who can learn the most from storytelling are academics who have the right mm-hmm. answers, but aren't the great, sto- the best storytellers by and large. A person, another person who really gets this is Bill Bryson, who yeah. uh, in, in virtually all of his books, he's not breaking new ground. Like what my favorite of his books is called The Body. It's basically an anatomy textbook, hmm. but it's so well written and the stories are so captivating that I've learned more about biology from Bill Bryson than I would a college biology class. It's not even close. And so the power of storytelling, it's like leverage. It's just like getting more information out of what's already there and just soaking it up. And it's influence. If you're in any job, your ability to write a good email, no matter what your career is, like that's a story too. And getting people's attention, particularly with online, with social media, people's attention spans are so short. Like you have three seconds to catch people's attention. And if you don't, they're gone. And that's true in a text, in an email, whatever it is, like storytelling is everywhere. And it's so important. I had a playwriting teacher, Louise Mason at Lake Forest College, who once said to me, if you can't tell me your play in one sentence, you don't have a play. That's it. Yeah. I have lived by that. That hit me at the time. And then, of course, working in a place like Second City, where you know we do sketch comedy, so brevity is a huge part of this. We're, we're not looking at big, huge, overarching narratives. We're looking at these little moments. It's sometimes 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And so... When we get brought into companies, a lot of times we teach them this exercise called 60-30-10, which is tell me who you are in 60 seconds, now do it in 30, now do it in 10, and sometimes now do it in a hashtag. And it really requires you, like, what is the most salient uh, uh, words that I can use that are going to explain me to you? And we just, this is not a thing that necessarily we get to practice in our later educational environments, in our corporate educational environments, and yet... What is more important? Because everything sales. What's more important than your relationships and your stories? Totally, and it's a, it's it's not a top, because it's a soft topic. I think it tends to be ignored, particularly by by the uh, the academics. If you're if you're a, a physics major or an engineer, really important. But you're not going to if you're a phys, if you're an engineering major, you're not going to go to a storytelling class probably. Even though no matter what your career is, it's so important. And once in a while, you see someone like Steve Jobs or James Dyson, who are equally talented as engineers as they are storytellers. And mm-hmm. there, the, the leverage there is completely off the charts. Uh, yeah. but, it, but it's very rare. Most people are either like very storytelling-centric or they're very uh, fact engineering, statistic-centric. When you mix the two together, you have the most successful people in society. And we were talking earlier, where you see this the most, the greatest storytellers in the world are comedians. Yeah. That's it. 
And I, I, this is not a unique view to me. A lot of people think this. Comedians, I think, understand human behavior better than most PhDs in psychology. They're so insightful, but they have a much bigger audience because they're great storytellers. And people don't want a lecture. They want a good story that will make them feel good about themselves. And they'll laugh and they'll remember it over time. When I remember I guest uh, taught at the class that my wife was teaching with Sunil at Northwestern. And uh, she had also worked with me at the University of Chicago when we developed the Second Science Project. And so building on things, uh, 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 evidence that we had from behavioral science, and then looking at our own knowledge in, in the comedy world, we were talking to the kids about uh, Anne's idea around perspective giving and perspective taking, that when you're an improviser, you do perspective taking. You ask for suggestions, you take those suggestions, put the stuff back to them. But stand-up comedians have to do something very different. Uh, they have to perspective give. And if you think about the first five minutes of a stand-up act that you love, they're talking about their flaws. Pat Oswald's a schlub, Amy Schumer's a slut, John Mulaney's a drunk. And it's that idea of the, yeah, what, how am I going to attach you to, to my thing and who I am? It's going to be something like this, something a little bit maybe negative or whatever, but I'm standing here, so I've gotten over it. And that's across the board, even going back to Carlin and Pryor and, and those sort of people. And, it's just, and, and to, to your point around comedians in particular, they have to be incredible observers, which means they're outside. Yeah, totally. So there's a pariah aspect to being really good at this. Yeah, it's 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 so true. I think it 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 wasn't until recent years that I started watching comedy with an with an eye towards getting smarter, not mm -hmm. just laughing. Yeah. But if you really listen to what for me it's George Carlin, Bill Burr, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, what they're saying is so incredibly wise and true and smart. And it's just they're they're observing human behavior and making sometimes really mundane observations, but twisting it into a story that you're like, yes, that's it. That's the one. That's I get it. And there are things that George Carlin said that I think are actually very similar to what Daniel Kahneman says. And with all respect to Kahneman, like someone like George Carlin could say it better and, and make you laugh and, and in a way that you're going to remember it. Because I think that is just such a superpower that you see in comedians. I thought your anecdote, which I had not heard before around Letterman interviewing Jerry Seinfeld was really interesting. Can you go over that? Yeah, Letterman and Seinfeld were talking. Uh, this is on the show Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, which which was such a good show. They're talking about this time when it was early on in Seinfeld's show mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the early 1990s. And Letterman said, oh, like, what is it like working with te like teams of writers that, NBA, that, that NBC can supply to you? Mm -hmm. And Jerry Seinfeld was like, oh, no, like it doesn't, they're, they're not that helpful. All these comedian writers are not that helpful. And Letterman's like, oh, I think that's really interesting. Like, you would think like, the, the, like all these writers that they supplied you would be really good. And Seinfeld said something along the lines of like, wouldn't it be strange if they were all good? Wouldn't it be strange if everyone who tries to write comedy was like incredibly good at it? And his point was like, it's supposed to be hard. Like being yes. really good at something should be really difficult. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be the kind of thing where you can just hire any old writer and like, hey, you're writing the best comedy in the world. It's supposed to be really, really hard. It's supposed to be difficult. And I think that's, that's really true. And it's true in professional sports. Like yeah. the reason we admire Michael Jordan is because there's one of him mm -hmm. in any sport. It's like that. So it's supposed to be hard. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be really difficult, which is why we admire the people who are like that. I do a lot of public speaking around behavioral finance stuff. And yeah. when I watch a, prof a, a professional stand-up comedian, I'm in awe of two things. Their memory of remembering all their lines during a one-hour uh, mm -hmm. comedy special and the lack of, of stumbles, the lack of ums. The lack of a it's just all the way through. Chappelle, all the way through, doesn't miss a single word. Bill Burr, all the way through, doesn't miss a single word. The skill that that involves is off the charts. And it's like, we admire these people because it's so ridiculously hard what they do. 
it's all there. There's there. I, I'm and I'm thinking about what you're talking about with comedians, and I think it's true for both stand-ups and improvisers. Is there's there's music and math going on as well. So recognizing the sort of cadence of comedy and that that's a very true thing in terms of tone and meter and all that. And then the math equation, they, they, they have done this act a thousand times in clubs with 20 people. Um, and that is the only way they know that they need to take a beat here, that they can take a rest there. This, when you discover when your laugh is going to come, it is the, it's the greatest thing in the world. And, and I know as a producer sitting on the sidelines, right, watching performances night after night after night, and then you know as well. So you, you take your eyes off of the stage and go right to the audience because you know everyone is going to laugh at the same time. Yes. That's an amazing thing. Two, two stories come to mind here. One, yeah. one that I use in the book uh, is Mark Twain. And when he used to write, he would read out loud to his family and he would just observe the emotions on their face. And when he could tell they were getting bored, He'd be like, okay, cut that paragraph. Yeah. And when their eyes would widen, when they'd sit up straight, he'd be like, I'm onto something. Let's double mm-hmm. down on here. That was so like, what authors do that? So few, but he understood the emotional connection between mm-hmm. the word and the reader. The other thing that I heard Chris Rock say one time is that his favorite moment during a comedy show is when he gets a big laugh early on and he thinks to himself, if you think that's funny, wait till you hear what's coming next. Yeah. Like he just, just owns the emotions of the audience. And that's what gives him the biggest thrill of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talk to us a bit about um, inefficiency. So business, normally that's they want to eliminate inefficiencies. That that and I'll tell and I'm gonna tell you a quick little story and then and then you can go into this, which was um, uh, when Second City was being sold, uh, uh, there was a prominent I'm not gonna say his name, uh, there was a uh, you're going to figure out who it is. Uh, there was a prominent alum uh, who was uh, involved with the company that was going to purchase us. I'm just going to say it was Colbert. So um, Colbert calls me and uh, to sort of say, look, I'm working with these folks. And uh, I was sort of like, well, what, 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 what are you doing? What do you think? And, and he's like, yeah, I'm not looking to take any, any money. It's just Second City is so important to me. And he said, and what I want to do is make sure that the things that are broken at Second City that need to stay broken, stay broken. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. And right, you know exactly what he means. Yes. I knew exactly yes. what he means. I, every time I've relayed that to someone, they know what it means. But it stands in the face of how people talk about business because it acknowledges yes. the inefficiencies are there for a reason. That is, that's one of the best quotes I've ever heard. I would say most people view inefficiency as deadweight loss, something that should, is just holding you down. You should get rid of it. I usually view inefficiency, at least to some extent. There's, it's possible to have too much. But most inefficiency is room for error of giving yourself just room for error to deal with the, all the bullshit of life, the unpredictable yeah. ups and downs. And there are so many individuals and businesses who have no room for error. They're perfectly efficient and they're so proud of it. And at the first hiccup of distress or surprise or uncertainty, they're toast. They're out. They're done. Mm-hmm. They're out of business. They're, they're morally broken, whatever it might be. And so I think it's not intuitive to think that you're going to do the best over time by running life at like probably 80 to 90% efficiency. Where you could do better, you could work harder, you could earn more money, but if you keep it at 80 or 90% efficiency, you're going to be sustainable over time. That's part of it. I think probably what's closer to what Colbert said to you is like, the reason the, reason the program was good is because it was not traditional. And if yeah. you made it perfect, if you made it traditional, you're going to get a traditional product. You're going to get an average product. And so a lot of that messiness, just brokenness, if you want to call it that, is just making you unique, is making you unique. There's a Steve Jobs quote where he says, differentiation is survival. 
That's hmm. it. It's not, it's not, it's like, that's how you survive in business is by doing something completely different. Yeah. And I've always been astounded in the book publishing world that the hit rate on books for a book to do well is extremely low. A book is like a seed stage startup where even if you do everything right, it's, it's probably not going to work. It's probably going to flop. And despite that very low success rate, most publishers want you to write the same book as everybody else who came before you. And they have very little appetite for doing something new. So for my first book, Psychology of Money, it was, hey, every chapter is going to be the length of a blog post. I'm not going to write long chapters. Most nonfiction books are 10 chapters that are 5,000 words. I'm going to do 25 chapters. They're going to be 1,200 words. And every, every publisher went, ah, no, no, no. That's not how you write a book. Yeah. And in my mind, it was like, no, actually, I think that's, I think that's what readers want because that's what I want as a reader. And they, it was so antithetical to their model that they all said, get out of here. But I think that's one of the reasons that the, that the book worked. So differentiation is survival. You have to be willing to do something that's different and different usually looks broken. Yeah. Uh, uh, my wife Ann was saying to me at one point, we needed to try to explain to our new owners and leaders uh, what a good enough show meant. Uh, because it's like, like, like you have to be able to play with good enough. You, you, you absolutely have to, especially in, in, in our work. Cause you, there's a great phrase by the teacher, Rick Thomas, who, who talks about the need to fall into the crack in the game. And that's when something goes wrong and, and you can make all these great discoveries and it's painful. And sometimes that you're going to be getting groans in the audience, but it's like, you're not going to do anything innovative um, if everything is just clean and working. Um, and, and we have set up, I mean, actually second city is set up very nicely for this because we have a two acts of scripted content and a third act of this improvised and that improv set, which is free. Anyone off the street can come in and the, and the actors often change out of a, their more nicer clothes and put on more like street clothes and they're playing. Um, and, and when we're creating a new show, that's where we're testing out new material, but you know, we've reduced the stakes and you talk to people, I, I, you know, and we've done this, which is like survey people. Like, what's your favorite part? The improv set. You're saying the favorite part is your part that hits way less. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think this is, this comes like, where, where I see it most in my field is in investing where so many people want a perfectly efficient investing portfolio. How do I squeeze out every penny that I can from my portfolio? And the, 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 the downside of that is it might work for a year or two and you do very well, but it's not sustainable. It's not going to last. You're going to blow up eventually. Yeah. And so in investing, you're going to do the best over time if you're constantly running at 80% of your potential because it's sustainable. You can keep it going. And like, I'm not interested in anything in life that's not sustainable, that I can't keep going for a long period of time. Friendships, relationships, investing strategies. If I can't keep it going indefinitely... I don't really have much interest in it. And the only way you can do that is to like go out of your way to make sure you're doing things a little bit inefficient. That's when you know it's just like it's 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 going to be sustainable over time because you're not pushing it all the way to its limit. And we should say a lot of this also you're drawing from is is evolution. You know, everything dies. There like nothing. I mean, you I think you bring it up in the book too if you look at the Fortune 500 from, you know, 20 30 years ago and you look at today, it looks different. Very different. It's always been like that. And I guarantee always. you that 20 years from now, the biggest companies today, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, NVIDIA, whatever, Tesla, I guarantee, I don't know which ones, but I guarantee you at least one of those businesses will not exist anymore. No. And the top 10 list will look very different. You can state that confidently because there's never been a point when that's not been true. Um, you know, 25 years ago, the biggest companies were GE, uh, AIG, Lehman Brothers, Kodak, those were, those, were, those were in the top. Like There's always this turnover in there. And it's, I think it's very difficult today to imagine a world in which 
Amazon, Apple, and Google are not dominant. But that's the entire history of business. It's just like evolution Evolution teaches by destroying. I think that's a Nassim Tyler yeah. quote. It doesn't teach you by showing you what works. It teaches by ruthlessly destroying what doesn't work. So that's that's what all evolution is in biology and in business. It's just like, oh, you're not working. Goodbye. You're done. Move, move along. It's a mm-hmm. ruthless thing, but that's that that's always how it's worked. Yeah, you know, people the the the, the long song here at Second City for years has been um, uh, wh- how you, you you're screwing things. You're making a mistake by not holding under your talent. So you have all these famous people come in. You don't participate in their career. You do all this training and all these other things, and you don't participate. And I'm and I'm like, you don't get it at all. I mean, there's a few different things that work in terms of this, but one of the biggest things is that. By saying goodbye to Tina Fey, that slot is left open for Amy Poehler to come in. Yeah. By saying goodbye to Amy Poehler, that means that Jason Sudeikis comes in. Jason Sudeikis goes by, Keegan-Michael Key comes in, whatever. Like, like we are creating our survival by not trying to and, – and also maintaining a very special kind of relationship with these people when they become successful because we're not trying to profit uh, throughout their entire career. Ah, that's that's so good. It's so counterintuitive. And if you said that in an MBA class, they would kick you out. Yeah. But it's so true. It makes it makes so much sense. And I, uh, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, if Steve Jobs had not died in 2011, yeah, uh, Apple would be so different today. They might be better. It might be worse. You're right. But like Apple's an amazing company today without Steve Jobs, and that that in itself is 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 so interesting because, I mean, what, one of the things that they did after Steve Jobs died is that when Tim Cook took over. Mm-hmm. Apple probably became a less innovative company, but they became <laughs> such a profitable, dominant powerhouse. And you can imagine a world where Steve Jobs didn't die and the products were a little bit cooler, but Apple would just be like teetering on the brink of insolvency today because you'd just be taking in all these different directions. So like, it's always the case. I think there's almost not, there's never been a business that would not benefit from having a new CEO every, like at least 15 or 20 years. Yeah. I was I was walking. I had lunch with a friend um, who was talking about his former. He just left his gig, and he's chief marketing officer. And he was talking about the CEO, and the CEO got interviewed somewhere, and they were like, "Well, what's your business philosophy?" He's like Jack Welch, and, and that was the tipping point for my friend. He's like, "How can you say that now with everything we we know? Have you like not read a book in the last ten years?" And I mean that yeah. that. that it, it, right, because I mean this this and, and he was he was held up as the titan. Couldn't be better. Years ago, and that's like it. It it it's not the reality. Totally, it's it's almost more interesting to me the people who are the opposite of that. Yeah, the one who comes to mind is Jimmy Carter. Okay. Of of he he leaves office and everyone is like, "Good riddance! Don't let the door." Like terrible, terrible job. And if you ask most people today, be like, "He's great." Love Jimmy Carter. (laughs) Habitat for Humanity. Amazing guy. If your reputation improves after you leave office, like that's. That, that that that's pretty that never story. happens never happens uh so that's that i've always found that really interesting him him in particular and there because way more way more common are people in business who leave on top and they're the ceo of the decade they're the investor of the decade and you realize how much of a of a mirage it was that yeah. all that inevitably unwinds and comes undone and it's jarring to think about what if I'm completely making this up? Cause I don't believe this yeah. to be true, but when, if Warren Buffett dies and 10 years from now, we realized, well, actually a lot of it was based off of luck or the right, or whatever right. it would be. It's jarring for that to happen to one of your heroes, which is, I think so, why so many people hang on to Jack Welch. The, the, the image that was, that was built in the late nineties was so grand and so powerful that even after there's so much evidence of it unwinding, people don't want to let go of it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but I got, I posted one of the things, uh, a few things that you wrote on social media. And this one, I don't think you saw this one, uh, but it got a big, big response. And you write in the book, quote, a simple rule that's obvious but easy to ignore is that nothing worth pursuing is free. How could it be otherwise? Everything has a price and the price is usually proportionate to the potential rewards, but there's rarely a price tag and you don't pay the price with cash. Most things worth pursuing charge their fee in the form of stress, doubt, uncertainty, dealing with quirky people, bureaucracy, and other people's conflicting incentives, hassle, nonsense, long hours, and a constant doubt. That's the overhead cost of getting ahead. A lot of times that price is worth paying, but you have to realize that's a price that must be paid, end quote. I had a couple people kind of push back on it, but I, I don't know that they truly understood what you're saying. But I think it's very, very true. Um, so I want you to sort of like let, take us behind what you're getting at there with, with, with that terrific paragraph. I imagine that some of the pushback is that for a lot of people, maybe even most successful people, the price was worth paying. But let's not pretend that there wasn't a price. That's right. I'm a big, I'm a big reader of biographies. And virtually every biography of a very successful entrepreneur, investor, comedian, whoever it would be, at the end of it, I'm like, God, at the, at the start of the book, I'm like, God, this person's life seems so awesome. And at the end of the book, I'm like, eh, it just doesn't seem mm-hmm. that great. The one that comes to mind the most is Warren Buffett, yeah. who uh, has devoted, it's not an exaggeration to say that he has devoted every waking hour since he's been 11 years old to picking stocks. That's, mm-hmm. That is so barely an exaggeration. And all of that came at the, at the cost of his personal life, his marriage, relationships with his kids, his friends, everything. It came at the cost. There's a, there's a video of Elon Musk several years ago, and he's talking about how hard he works between uh, SpaceX and Tesla and whatnot. And he starts crying and he says, all of this has come at the expense of spending time with my kids. Mm-hmm. So like, that's, that's, that's the cost that you don't see the price tag of. And there's almost no one for whom that's not the case, who, for, for someone who's very successful. It's, it's, ve- it's very extremely rare that you're going to have someone who's that successful that hasn't paid a massive price. Michael Jordan, Kobe, and Tiger Woods are the three people who stuck out. Who the reason they were so good is because they worked three times harder than yeah. than every other person they're playing against. That was the cause. There's this really great anecdote from I think the 2008 Olympic basketball team, where there's one night when all of the team says we're going to go party tonight, like like off night we're going to go party. They go out, they have a good night. They stumble back to the hotel at 4 a.m. and as they stumble through the lobby drunk, Kobe is heading to the gym. He didn't go out with them. And it's like, that's why he was so good. That was the cost that he paid. It came at the cost of his entire personal life, his family life to devote everything you have to one thing. And for some people, for those people, I don't think it was a choice. I think their personality was wired to the extent that like they had to do that. They, they couldn't do anything else but focus on golf, basketball, whatever it would be. But for most people, that, that price would not be worth it. If, if, if I had a genie and the genie said, Morgan, you can be the richest person in the world, the best investor in the world, but it's going to come at the cost of knowing your children and, and you're going to get divorced because of it. Yeah. Absolutely not. No, there's nope. no world in which I would like that. Nope. The stat that I always throw around is that among the top 10 richest men in the world, there are a cumulative 14 divorces among the top 10 richest men in the world. I don't wow. think that's a coincidence. I think when you devote yourself so grandly to one pursuit of the business that you're running, it, everything else is collateral damage around you. And to some people, that's a great life. I think to 99% of us, it's not worth it. You mentioned this too in the book, and it's something I remember my mom telling me this at, at, at one point, saying that her observation of, 
uh, uh, successful human beings. And my, so my dad was a um, TV radio guy here for 33 years at WGN. So he interviewed all the celebrities coming through. And so I had this sort of, he had local fame. He was interviewing famous people. Then I worked here. So I've always been adjacent to, to fame. And it's a very interesting place to, to sit. Um, and she said that when you find people who are really, really successful in one thing, it probably means they've sacrificed something else in another area. Yes. And I mean, Musk is the greatest example of this, which especially right now, which is, yeah, you you are, are clearly a, a genius in a variety of area, areas and you are um, blowing yourself up in front of all of us right now. Totally. I, I, I tend to think in general that if you are abnormally talented at one thing, you are probably abnormally bad at something else. It's yeah. like your brain only has enough capacity for so much intelligence and emotion. And if you are lopsided in one area, it's going to come at the cost of something else. For a lot of those people, wealth and fame and success comes at the cost of their personal life. Uh-huh. And so I think one of the reasons like TMZ is so popular is because the celebrities are getting divorced every day. You can't, you can't be a perfectly balanced person and live a normal life. It just doesn't work. And I think there's something true that uh, when we are shocked at Elon Musk's behavior, when he's on Twitter doing whatever he's doing, saying what he's doing, Donald Trump's behavior, whoever it might be, I think it is, it is wrong to want to admire Elon Musk for his engineering capabilities and his entrepreneur capabilities and still act like a normal person in other areas of life. That's never going to happen. Yeah. It, you, you have to accept people for the full package. And you should not be surprised when there are people who think about the world in abnormal ways that you like, that when you find out that they also think about ways, think about the world in ways that you don't like. And there's so many examples of this. Henry Ford, greatest entrepreneur of his, of his era, rabid anti-Semite. Like there's, yeah. there's so many, there's so many of that example that you can find in virtually everybody. John Lennon. Uh, yeah, yeah. Virtually everyone. There's, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 like, don't meet your heroes. I mean, let, you know, let him beat his wives. I mean, he just did Richard Pryor did as well. So, yes. I mean, like, and, and that, and that's always the hard thing in terms of uh, trying to make sort of 2023 pronouncements on 1960 figures or whatever, you know, it's, it's, but it's, but I think it's, it's true. I think what you're saying is also, yeah, it's true over time. It's not just that mores changed in general, human beings are complicated and they might, especially for those who, who do miraculous things there, there is that balancing act in their own psyche, their own universe, whatever it is that leads yeah. them to the other, other, other path. Gandhi, <laughs> Martin Luther King. I, I was just talking to Jonathan Ig, who wrote that fantastic King biography. And, you know, the, the kids were, were not interested because he was going to tell the full story. And it's like the full story of King does not, you do not read that and think less of King. I, I didn't. Uh, but they 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 don't they don't even want to have anything to do with that. Yeah, because it because it would disrupt their image of the hero that he is. Is that yep. was that what it is? Yep. Yeah. I I don't think there's been a single biography in which I came away thinking better about the person. If I thought about it, if I if I thought about it, I, I might I might take that note back, to I self. Think, I think that's I think that's directionally true because yeah. I tend to read a biography of someone and I'm like, oh, that person seems amazing. And at the surface level, at the headline level, they are. But then you read about them and everybody, my life, you're like, everyone's personal life is complicated and messy. Yeah. And when you get that detail, it's easy. You, you, you just realize that everybody's human. I think that's the takeaway. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm less impressed. It's that they're more human at the end of it. Yeah. And of and, course they're. And, and, and that's a great thing to realize that there are no, there are no walking gods. Everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time in the morning. Everyone's dealing with the same kind of insecurities and irrational thoughts that you are. And that's actually very 
uh, comforting to learn when you read these biographies. It should be. It should be. All right. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? So yes and being a time that I did something that I shouldn't have done, but it ended up okay. Is that, is that what we're getting Maybe sure didn't want to. So when I was in, when I was in college, uh, I was reading a blog by a guy who I had never heard of. His name was Sham Gad. And he had an error in his blog. Uh, mm-hmm. It was very simple. He was talking about an investor who he said went to Harvard. I knew this investor went to Yale. I emailed Sham Gad to correct him, which I never do. I, the internet's filled with bad information, but I wanted to correct this guy. Yeah. Sham wrote back and said, thanks, I'll fix it. By the way, I see from your email address that you go to USC. And I'm going to be in LA soon. Uh, and he was asking for directions about how to get from LAX to downtown. Yeah. And I said, without the blue, I've never done anything like this before. I said, hey, I'll come pick you up at the airport. I have no idea who this guy is, yeah. but I offered to go pick him up. Uh, long story short, I pick up Sham at the airport. I have no idea who this guy is. I don't know if he's 17 or 87, but I pick him up. And he ends, he ends up sleeping at my, on my couch that night. You know, I don't know who he is, but he's an investor. I'm an investor. He leaves the next day. We never talk ever again. Well, no, I should say we, we, we don't talk for another year. Yeah. One year later, I'm working at a private equity firm and they had just laid me off. Mm. It was the summer of 2007. The world was collapsing. They just yeah, laid me off. Time. And uh, I was doing some research for this fund and I go into Yahoo Finance and I see that there is one article about this company I'm researching. And I click on the article and it's written by Sham Gad. And I'm like, hey, I know that guy, this stranger I let sleep on my couch a year ago. I email him to say, hey, I, I see you're writing now. That's so cool. And I said, by the way, I just got laid off. If you know anyone who's hiring, let me know. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, the Motley Fool, who he was writing for, yep. is hiring writers. And if you want me to put in a good word for you, I, I, I will. And that was how I became a writer, which I still am today. It all happened because I let this complete and utter stranger sleep on my couch, which I would never do and never recommend anyone do. No, themselves. don't do it. Never do it. But if I had not done that, I, my, my career trajectory and my life trajectory would have been utterly different than it is now. That is, an, that is a, the epitome of a yes and story. That's falling into the crack in the game, too. That is really is like, no, nope, this could go completely horribly wrong. But to the point of the book, it could, or it could be birthing the rest of your career. <laughs> yep, exactly. You never know. And of course, even in, in hindsight, I should not have done it. And I would never do something like that today. But again, it's, it's just a reminder of how fragile life can be. You have no clue what the littlest thing is going to grow into. The book is called Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. Morgan Housel, thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks so much, Kelly. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.